Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I do have an author here I want to grill, and his name is Robert Got so Robert, welcome, good sir. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be back, and we do find it. It's it's a bit of a, 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 a well, not a murder mystery, but a mystery involved in your novel. You are in fact revealing all, and the pun is intended about politicians, fundamentalists, and those in the field of public relations in your latest novel, Naked Ambition. Yes. Uh, would you like a thumbnail sketch of the plot, David? Well, th- this would help. You, you're sort of taking the mickey out of politicians, yes. fundamentalists, yeah. but what's happened? It's a departure from my usual genre. I normally write in the historical crime genre, but you know, while there's great pleasure to be had in finding new ways to kill people, I thought, I'll just I'll write a straight-out, up-and-up contemporary comedy. So I had this idea. I'm sure I'm not the only person, although maybe I am, who, when you look at a politician, you sometimes wonder, I wonder what that person looks like nude. Is that just me? Look, I I think it might be a bit beyond the belief of some of us to to look at some of our politicians. I'm not saying it's a good thing, and it adds to my nightly screaming schedule when I imagine these people. But I thought, well, let's put this at the centre of a comedy. But it's and it's how this politician in particular, Indeed. Gregory Buchanan, sees name. himself. Indeed, he's young-ish. You know, he's in his late thirties. He's ambitious. It's never revealed what, <clears throat> excuse me, what side of politics he's on. But we're assuming left-leaning, but it's never declared. Uh, and he makes this absurd decision that he would like to have his portrait painted for the Archibald Prize. And the artist he chooses to paint him is a young woman called Sophie White, who's an established artist, and she paints in the photorealist style, and she's very good. And she convinces him to be painted full frontal nude. And he agrees. Now, the problem is, it's an election year. And the election hangs in the balance. Now, the government can't afford to lose a single seat. And he's in government. Now, already we've got a problem here. You talk about hang in the balance. All of a sudden, the, the language starts to change, or the, the potential for the puns in Unintentional. Language. It's hard to get away from these sorts of things, David, if you're talking about parliament and hung parliaments. And I try not to And a member of parliament. Member of parliament. They are in the book, but you, you're not forcing those. No. The reader sort of comes across them and thinks twice. Yes. I mean, even yes. as we were speaking, you, you were talking about leaning left or leaning right and all of a sudden my mind was going of wild course, because that's the kind of person you are David. <laughs> you were thinking does this gentleman dress to the left or dress to the right but so, you know can, can we talk about the, the pure all things are pure and let, let's put it as transparency in government okay that's what he says so he, he wants people to see him as an honest politician but it's also about his own ego too, which is of course associated with politicians. Yes, of course. It's about vanity. <laughs> it's about naked ambition. Now, is there a difference between naked and nude? 
In art historical terms, uh, Sir Kenneth Clark posed this argument in his very famous book, The Nude. And he maintained that when you stand before an artist, you are naked. And by the time the artist has finished doing the painting or the sculpture, you have been transmuted into the nude so that your picture sits within uh, art history and you are no longer naked, you are elevated to the position of nude. Now, many people would see that that is a distinction without a difference. And we all know in art history that mythological scenes were a fine excuse to paint naked ladies, but that's what it was for. We have a, a tradition, and and it's there in Young and Jackson's, the female sure, form, Chloe. Chloe. But would a, a full frontal nude of a male be seen in the same light and revered like we revere Chloe? No, except in, in classical Greek and Roman sculpture and possibly the works of Michelangelo, which were heavily influenced by the discoveries in Rome in the 15th century of these new classical sculptures. A great sculpture like the Loaka one was um, unearthed at that time and Michelangelo was heavily influenced by something like that. But often when a nude is painted in the 19th century, for example, the genitals are obscured or bizarrely they're really small. <laughs> they're tiny. But now we've got this, uh, so you're looking at politicians and their yep. egos. We have the Archibald Prize. And we you're, having, you're having a word or two to say about this? Well, <laughs> <laughs> we're all interested in the Archibald in a perverse kind of way because even though it's not the wealthiest portrait prize in Australia, that's the Moran Prize. The Moran Prize doesn't attract, attract as much controversy as the Archibald. The Archibald, uh, we all wait and see who wins and often... It, it, it's very controversial because it's split down the middle. Some people love it, some people hate it. That's and is the it, idea of and the is Archibald. it art? And is well, <laughs> well, this that's year, a very big question. Would, would you like to make a comment on this year's uh, the um, nature of this year's winner? The well, portrait. I wouldn't need. It's very hard to tell looking at a photograph, and I've only seen a photograph of the picture, so I will reserve judgment until mm. I see it in 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 real life because. It may well be that the size of the picture has an important effect on its effect on the viewer, and also the colours aren't right in any photographs. I'd like to see it before I before but I judge it. But it. it's used materials and and a collage type. Uh, well, look, the prize is mixed media. Mixed media. It can be. Oh, okay. It has to be some oil or some, no. It doesn't have to be oil. Just mixed media. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. But Sophie White, the artist in your story, yeah. ha wants it in the Archibald. And she sure does, because to win the Archibald is to secure your place. It's great for your career if you win the Archibald. There's no doubt about that. But not necessarily great for the career of not Gregory <laughs> Buchanan. And his wife um, is Phoebe uh, is in public relations advising. Yes. He hadn't told his wife. He had not sought advice from his wife, which was a very, very poor idea. And, of course, she's furious because she also sees, as soon as she looks at this picture, that but Sophie White clearly despises him. And she despises him not just because he agreed to be painted nude, although she does despise him for agreeing. She sees right through him. But she probably despises his politics as well. Sophie White is a very difficult person and she's painted his face so that it looks venal and vain and supercilious 
all of those things, and smug. But but Phoebe's also a little jealous. I mean, what well, was going on in these um, sort of in portrait sessions? sessions? That's right, because he failed to mention to her, <laughs> first of all, that he was having his portrait done, and second of all, that it was nude. And thirdly well, of all, it was it. a young female artist. <laughs> a young female oh, artist. Let, let's yes. get on to uh, Phoebe's mother, Joyce uh, Milford. Yes. A fundamentalist Christian. She's a fundamentalist Christian who believes that the world is 6,000 years old. So clearly we have um, an IQ issue. Uh, but like all fundamentalist Christians, she is like many fundamentalist Christians, I should say. <laughs> She's fueled by hate, not by love, and by the desire for vengeance. She doesn't believe in a cheery, happy God. She believes in a wrathful, vengeful, ugly God. And she doesn't like the portrait. She, <laughs> no, she thinks it's out-and-out out pornography. <laughs> Out and out pornography. You are a whited sepulchre. <laughs> she called him a whited sepulchre, which is a word for a hypocrite. But um, yeah, uh, she has an agenda. Though. She does because the upcoming election, which is, as I say, hanging in the balance, uh, it, it is set in Victoria. So um, she wants a candidate from her religious group to stand in an electorate in Victoria, and she wants the sitting government, of which Gregory is a member, to actually direct its preferences to her candidate. Now, we won't give away how she manages to do this. <coughs> but she has a petition as well about education. She has a petition about education. She wants Christianity taught in all schools, state schools. Creationism. And creationism in the science mm. curriculum mm. in all schools, including she wants Christianity taught in Islamic schools. Of course, as, and as would. she says, there are kid, there are people out there, kiddies out there who think that Jesus is the little Brazilian boy who lives down the street. I do actually have a confession yes. to make. Yes, here. the very first article I had in the Age was on this issue, and there was the argy bargy going on at the time. Howard was talking about mm. chaplains in schools, yeah. and the secularists were saying, "No, no, 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 no." I wrote an article from the perspective of a literature teacher ah. because more often than not I've had to teach religion so to understand the references to understand the culture sure there needs to be yes but how do you get the balance well it's a good question I mean when I taught literature as well it makes it so much easier if if kids have some iconographic knowledge mm. about the the west the western culture which which we are teaching so if you're teaching James Joyce, it's helpful to know something about Catholic iconography. Yeah. And if you're teaching fine arts, it's very helpful to know about yeah. mythology for a start because well, you know, myth, that's important. Yeah. And also Christian symbols, which some people might call mythology as well. Yeah. Let's bundle them together. For and, and the Well, the foundations of Western sure. civilization. Absolutely. Now, just to round out the picture, we have Sally. Uh, Sally is the politician's sister. <laughs> she, she's possibly the only sensible person in the book. But she's a well. She's a uh, um, she's gay. Uh, she's addicted. She's gay. Yes, absolutely. Uh, not that that's important. But she's addicted to lycra. <laughs> she rides a bicycle everywhere, and her mother is horrified by this because she thinks she's going to get a yeast infection, <laughs> and and she also thinks that you know lycra creates enough static electricity to feed into the grid. But now we sort of get 
plot complications, Louise Weatherly Who's arrives, the premier. The premier. And she hasn't seen the picture yet. yet. <laughs> but she arrives with the news that there's been a bit of a scandal in the party and Gregory has been promoted to the position of education minister. Which Joyce loves. <laughs> and then she sees the portrait. And so, so, of course, it cannot hang in the Archibald Prize. It simply cannot hang in the Archibald Prize. Which brings us to section two of the novel. Part two, a crime is committed, <laughs> and then the novel becomes a kind of whodunit. Because we won't say what that crime is, but a crime is committed, and every single person in the book is a viable yeah. suspect for having committed that So crime. they've all got motivations all got for... Um, so you, you don't want to announce the crime? No, no, no. no. Okay. Uh, but everyone's got uh, an agenda. Everyone could have a possible reason yes, indeed. for this occurring. Yes. And so it's like, um, well, this could work as a play when you've got all of these characters coming yeah, on well, board, adding to the tension, and now they're all in one enclosed setting, yes. the living room, and, okay, who is the culprit and what are their motivations? Exactly. It would work extremely well as a play. This is like a three-act um, drawing room novel <laughs> as opposed to a three-act drawing room uh, play. But yes, it's, it's, it's very play-friendly, theatre-friendly. So everyone, um, well, can we expose who did it, sort of pardon the pun, uh, things are there hidden, again. Uh, and there we go again. <laughs> but now, yeah, as we said, Gregory's the education minister. Yes. How does he appease... Uh, Joyce, Joyce, his own mother-in-law. Exactly. And, but it also now speaks to the influence these minor parties yes. can have yes. on the political scene, yes. which is happening right around the world. Even as we speak. Yeah. Yes. And so, it happened in the Victorian election. Yeah. Unexpectedly, good candidates lost their seat to, uh, all, you know, all, I'm just alternative right candidates. Yeah. And good candidates lost their seat. But, and I'm talking about Fiona Patton here. Yeah, um, she lost her seat to someone from the DLP, which just completely blows my mind. But you could even understand why nuff nuffs are allowed in Parliament, because if you've got a one seat majority, you actually have to protect the idiot, um, so your party can stay in power. Yeah. It's not nothing to do with uh, being rational or reasonable. No, no, yeah. that's that's how politics works. I mean, look at jo George Santos. In, um, oh, in America. My goodness. He's charged yeah. with all manner of things. The Republican Party will not disown him. Nor will they disown Trump. Oh, they won't disown matter. Trump. No. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is uh, Naked Ambition by Robert Gott. Find out what happens to Gregory Buchanan. Does he lose his seat? I can't think of an appropriate pun at this point in time. The political ramifications of what is going on. And it's a scribe release. So, Robert, look, thank you very much for talking with thank me you, today. David. It's been an absolute pleasure. And now I have... Claire Christian's in. Uh, I have Lisa Mool's interview with Claire Christian. Today I have with me um, Claire Christian. Westside Honey is her newest release, and I'm pleased to be joined by her today. Welcome, Claire. Thank you for having me. When protagonist single mum Cleo and her ex husband start a new custody schedule, mm. Cleo gets the opportunity to embrace the world of casual dating and ethical non-monogamy. Mm -hmm. What a fantastic take. Cleo lives with her supportive best friend, Jude, and their respective children. 
and Cleo runs a flower shop called Westside Honey with her friend Farida. So your novel is bingeable, sexy, indulgent, and yet simultaneously groundbreaking and subversive. Oh, thank you. What was your inspiration for the novel? Uh, the initial seed became in my best mate's kitchen, who is a brilliant single mum, and I helped her in a parental moment where um, I just kind of said to her then four-year-old, you know, what did your mum just say? And she looked at me and she said, God, can't you just live here all the time? Oh. And I said, you know, I wish I did too because I totally get what she meant. Everything in my life is easier when we are together. And I left kind of that trip thinking about our friendship and thinking about our love story, this kind of soul level great love um, of my life, which I just didn't see really represented anywhere. I think the way that we partic particularly female friendship in media is we pit women against each other and that just hadn't been my experience of this kind of relationship in my life. So I wanted to write about that kind of love and I also wanted to write about how incredible single mums are um, because I don't think they are in the narrative and I don't think we're having that conversation about how incredible I completely <laughs> agree with you. There is yeah. just so much that we don't talk about to do with parenthood, to do mm -hmm. with uh, single parents. I, I also feel like in a way with this novel, you're kind of reshaping or refocusing the lens mm. in a way. So you're taking us out of the, the nuclear family yeah. and you're presenting kind of new possibilities. Mm. I, I really like this relationship between... Uh, Jude and Cleo in the mm. book. Um, for me, you know, th this is so important just to write these female characters mm -hmm. and to give voice and point of view to these women. Yeah. So could you please read for me sure. about the, the relationship? Between, this is, I chose this as a, as a way of sort of getting into a little bit of their, their relationship because yeah. it's such a beautiful component to this book. I tap lightly on Jude's bedroom door. I hear her mumble something, so I go in and we stare at each other, surveying the damage. I am holding a takeaway tray from the coffee shop around the corner, which I hand to Jude as I shift the dead weight of Mabel the dog's big, snoring body and get under the covers and burrow my pounding head under a pillow. A few moments later, Jude nudges me and hands over painkillers, water and electrolytes, a bed picnic fit for a queen or at least two 30-something single mothers who are severely out of late-night boozing practice. Jude opens one of the brown paper bags I've bought and peers inside. Do you know how grateful I am for you right now? She pulls out a cherry danish and takes a bite. Well, I'd be f I figured you'd be feeling exactly like I do, I say. You mean like someone has opened my skull with an angle grinder? Is that how you feel? <laughs> Excellent. There's so much comedy in the book as well. There's yeah. this kind of a real joyful component to the way that you've written this. Is that something that you were wanting to do, bring in sort of a sense of humour into yeah, the work? Yeah, absolutely. I think I want to write books that feel joyous to read, that are joy-led or uplifting to read, but also have a kind of undercurrent of politics <laughs> or the kind of world that I imagine in terms of empowered 
women navigating their life on their own terms, talking about things that we don't talk about, like parenting, like non-monogamy, like relationships, like determining the rules for yourself. And I want them to feel like you know these people and that also the kind of experiences that they're having are possible for you too. My Mm. friend describes them as like authentic wish fulfillment, which I think is a great... What a great phrase. phrase. Yeah. Yeah, So it is close. Like you could have the kind of relationships, you could do the things that these characters are doing. It doesn't feel that far off, but Mm. also there's some nice alignment and magic. (laughs) Definitely. So you you mentioned the political and you Mm. do really bring the political into the book without being didactic. So how did you manage this? I think um, it all kind of stems from, I think you said it beautifully earlier, around the things that we don't talk about. And for me, at the core of it, pleasure is political and the lens in terms of culture and how it says that we should be or the rules we should abide by, what it means to be a mother, what it means to date, what it means to tick all the boxes and have the kind of relationships that we're told to have. And it's, I think what I've realised now that I'm nearing my 40s is it's all made up by people who actually don't have my best interests at heart as a fat, queer woman, you know. So I'm kind of unravelling that all those rules are not mine and the people who have made them up don't give a shit about me anyway. So oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm just going to quote one of your characters who says, the best friend, lover, soulmate, companion is a big fat lie. <laughs> I loved that line. Claire, have we been fed a big lie, do I you think? I think so. I heard in a podcast a couple of weeks ago this great comment about friendship is the last anti-capitalist like notion that we have because the culture doesn't benefit anything from spruiking friendships. <laughs> of course. But our marriages, our weddings, like throw these big parties, like that is an economic it's com- dream. It's like Exactly. Yeah, whereas friendship Culture doesn't benefit anything from telling us how good our friends are. Yeah. Um, I'm sure someone will try and get something out of us <laughs> exactly, at some point. Exactly, now they will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now <laughs> yeah. that we've all kind of clocked on. So I think writing about people taking claim of their own lives and just determining what works for them and what doesn't. My previous novel to this, It's Been a Pleasure, Noni Blake, was me exploring kind of very similar themes in terms of just someone taking claim of their own life and determining what pleasure means for them or determining what they need and asking for it, even if that kind of goes against what they've been taught to believe. Mm. So for Cleo, you see her take that journey through the whole book of starting as a kind of people pleaser and someone who's a little bit insecure and at the end learning to recognise what she wants and then how on earth you go about getting that. That's right. So there is a certain point where her and Farida set about going on the dating apps and then they set her a a task I think it was 20 a week 20 dates 20 dates and um, so she then has to fulfill that criteria and in the process she well she first of all begins by discovering what her green flags are yeah Um, what are the green flags so uh, this is a conversation I'd had when I was dating I had kind of ended a long-term marriage and then was dating and and entered my marriage pre-updating and then suddenly I'm in this world of like whoa how 
on earth <laughs> does this work? What is happening here? Um, so I was learning a whole new language and a way of being in the world at the same time as friends of mine who had done it a little bit longer than me. So we were having conversations about non-negotiables and green flags because I think we're now very good about talking about our red flags in relationships and what are your red flags. But I, no one was having conversations about, well, what do you actually want and what are you looking for and what feels good to you? So the conversations that manifest in the book pretty much were the conversations I was having at the time that I was creating and writing it. So green flags were noticing, one of the big ones for me was noticing the way that people I was dating talked about their exes and whether they talked about their exes with a, a level of compassion and emotional intelligence or the, or the conversations they would have about family or how they felt about pets or dogs. like Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Small things. But significant things that tell yeah. us a lot about um, the person behind that veneer that you get when you're dating. Exactly, mm. yeah. So for Cleo, it was working out what kind of relationship she wanted to be in and with what kind of person because she is someone whose marriage has ended. She's got two young kids. She's been solely focused on that for the last kind of five years and now she's got this space with this new custody arrangement to actually kind of have some time for herself, which is the commodity that parents do not have and so she's actually got some time to think about and make some decisions for for herself and think about what she wants and who she wants to spend her time with. Yeah, and I, I think that's that you've really hit on something there because time for a mother, there's never any time or, or investment in the mother's own needs and wants and yeah. pleasure and desire. It's all about how can that woman facilitate the needs of her children? Yes. And there's very little dialogue about or permission even yeah. for women to give them themselves some airplay. And we as a culture, we talk about and we celebrate the selflessness of mothers. We celebrate how selfless our parents are, mm. like our, the, these parents are. You know, we, we're coming into Mother's Day next weekend and it's always just like celebrate how much mum does for you. Celebrate how good – and. You know, walking into a shop and seeing Mother's Day banners around like dishwashing stackers and those sorts of things, I'm like, this is a problem when yeah. we're going get mum a new vacuum or get yeah. mum a new thing to clean with. It's like we have lost our way. Do you think the feminist movement has come on much since the 60s? Oh, when I think about this, I think I get angry about how little progress we've made, but then I often think about generationally and I'm quite close with my matriarchal line and I think about generationally the experience of my grandmother and then the experience of my mother and then the experience of me and then I realise how far we have actually come. My grandmother married my grandfather, he's the first man she ever met, she'd never even had anyone talk to her about sex or sexuality or mm. how you even have a baby and then suddenly she's thrust into this relationship at 19 and has a child with no concept of her own body. The whole thing is just beguiling. It's so beguiling to then raise a daughter in the 60s and 70s who is then more aware of her own politic, who has more access to date and be in the world, but still is kind of, you know, married and had children by the time she was 23, my mother, and then mm. now I'm writing about sex and politic and existing in the world, living on my own, childless and determining who and what I want to be. Like the that truth. is only three generations. That's actually quite 
a ma- I can have my own bank account, you know, like. <laughs> exactly. Claire, there's so much I wanted to ask and we're really short on time. Yeah. Um, but just thank you for, for this incredible book. You write incredible sex scenes as well. Oh, thank you. Do you have a, a little tip for us on that? <laughs> oh, it, when I first wrote, so my previous book had the first time that I had written sex scenes and there's a weird like anxiety about it, submitting it to my editor for the first time to kind of go, what if this is how I find out that I have <laughs> been doing it weirdly or wrong? No. Like my editor being like, um, I don't know if people will. <laughs> Something so we need to tell you. Exactly. So there's a weird anxiety about it. But um, there's certainly funny days where, you know, my job will be, okay, I'm going to write this sex scene. I want this to feel a certain way. I want this to feel sexy. Where my job is to like watch scenes from Outlander or normal people <laughs> and get some inspo and then go Love to my people. computer yeah. and write. I'm like, this is my job. Like, this yeah. is bizarre. Yeah. And what a great job it is. And you do such a good job of it. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, Claire, you. for coming in today and being my guest. It was a pleasure to have oh, you. Thank you for having me.